In terms of power, um, yeah, I would describe COVID as a as a stutter and a short-term impact, but I don't actually think it's going to have that big an impact on our overall business and our overall growth. I have no doubt that when we when we look back on 2020, we'll see a, a small dip in investment and perhaps some projects slowed. But everything I think that that has been on the cards for some time will continue. It just might be a few months or quarters later than we expected. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers, and academia from all over the world, and it will explore the hottest topics across the energy market. It'll be hosted by various experts from Aurora and will give a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm John Fedderson, co-founder and chief executive of Aurora, And on the show today, we'll be discussing the energy transition globally uh, with an investor who's literally pushing forward uh, the energy transition across most of the world's continents, across a number of new technologies with billions of dollars of investment. Uh, So it's my great pleasure today to welcome uh, Riverstone partner, Chris Hunt. Uh, Welcome, Chris. Thanks, John. Thanks for inviting me. Good to be here. Great. Uh, So by way of background, Chris's day job, I suppose, or his main role is that he's a partner at Riverstone, which is is one of the world's largest, maybe the world's largest um, energy-focused private equity fund. And what Riverstone are doing, I mean, you're almost better off asking what Riverstone aren't doing. Uh, they're, they're pushing among their big projects at the moment. Uh, they're developing a thousand megawatt wind farm in the US at present. Which market's that in, Chris, just out of interest? Oh, that particular one's in uh, Western United States, serving into California from outside California. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so wind in the U.S. Um, biomass uh, is a major business of Riverstone. They own a, a company called Enviva, uh, and and the, the, uh, to supply biomass uh, pellets for uh, for combustion. Uh, they're focusing on Japan at the moment, which I suppose is one of those markets that's been in the process of liberalizing for for a decade or two now and is making making some progress. Uh, and in Japan, they're focused on wind and solar as well as biomass. Uh, he's also active in Latin America. Uh, and he's also, uh, I suppose, Riverstone developing gas engines around the world uh, to provide quick response and to keep the, keep the lights on. Uh, Chris has a, has a number of other roles. I won't go into all of them, but he's on the board of NTR, which is one of Ireland's leading renewables developers. Uh, and he's also a professor uh, of practice at Imperial uh, Imperial College in London, uh, uh, teaching teaching there. So he's uh, he's very active across the whole sector. Before his current roles, uh, he, he really is. I, I mean, I don't. I'm not sure. I know anyone who's been in the renewables business longer than Chris. He was developing wind farms in the 80s uh, before Riverstone. He ran the power, the international power development businesses at BP and and Enron. Uh, and perhaps from the Aurora perspective, because Aurora is an energy modelling company, uh, Chris's most distinguished role uh, was a long time in history where he actually started his career uh, as an energy modeller. And I think there's probably, well, at least my personal view is there's no greater grounding in, uh, in, in, uh, for, a, for a career in electricity than starting off modelling power systems. Was it a good grounding, Chris? Oh, boy. You're, uh, I'm breaking down the hives thinking back on those days. That, it was a long time ago, and the computing power that existed back in the 1980s was nothing where it is today. So 
we would uh, we would oftentimes uh, write code by the day, and then we'd try to run it at night. And as soon as we'd hit hit run, we'd see the light flicker, and uh, the city of DC would go dark for a minute. <laughs> um, so this is a way before my time, I'm afraid. Uh, but no, it was a pretty good way to to get a good grounding in the business and understand how markets work. Yeah, you may be surprised at the number of parallels. In fact, at Aurora, <laughs> we 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 don't have minimum model runtime as an objective. We have an optimal runtime, and it's around about around about twelve hours or so. Because the you know the, the shorter the runtime, the more features you can then add to your to your more useful features you can add to your model. And, and I, I recall from a recent meeting, you said you're, you're it's not just you, your family are have, are doing modeling at the moment, or your son's modeling Texas or something oh, yeah. like that. Yeah, no, I've got three sons all doing computer science, and, and some of them are actually getting into modeling uh, electricity markets. So it's uh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. No. So excellent. So that's some 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 background on on Chris. I'd like to cover. I mean, given your broad interest, it'd be great to cover a, a number of topics. Uh, and I'd like as we as we at least from the power sector perspective start to emerge from from COVID nineteen, understand what you think the biggest impacts of that have been. On the on the industry, where's that where, where's that impacted your 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 day to day the most? Well, in, in terms of power, um, yeah, I would describe COVID as a as a stutter and a short term impact, but I, I don't actually think it's going to have that big a, an impact on our overall business and our overall growth. Uh, you know, I, I, I no doubt that when we when we look back on 2020, we'll see a, a small dip in investment and and perhaps some projects slowed, but but everything I think that that has been in planning and has been on the cards for some time, will continue. It just might be a few months or quarters later than we expected. You know, a lot of our projects, we we literally plan for five or six years to get them from, from idea to, to execution and and losing a couple months usually doesn't really have that major an impact. Yeah, we are seeing some things. Sometimes it's a bit harder to get some solar panels and a bit later to get some wind turbines, but by and large, we're still pushing forward and, and, I, and I haven't seen really any critical projects die. Does it at all change your view on long-term commodity markets? You know, in, in still in most parts of the world, uh, electricity projects, generation projects, are the economics are determined by views on fossil fuel prices. Mm-hmm. Does it change your view of what the world looks like in 2030? Well, you know, we are a very disciplined investor. So when we build a project, we either have the output sold under a long-term agreement or we're very convinced we're the low cost supplier and would be the low cost supplier in a, in a range of circumstances. So we actually haven't um, been that injured. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people who have entered the markets with a fair amount of merchant experience are finding that, you know, the, the, the prices can go down faster and further than they expected when they, they originally approved doing a project. So, so I think the people who were, we're taking a strategy of playing the markets. I think we'll probably have to sit back and question whether or not that was a wise choice. Uh, but for us, it really hasn't been a, a big impact. Yeah, and, and the other one that seems to be creeping in is green stimulus. Mm-hmm. Are you getting a sense that governments keen to push for you know to play a bigger role in, you know, as Boris Johnson says, building back better in Europe? Yeah, you've seen the EU, you've seen Germany, you've seen signs in Britain. I think there will be a fair amount of green and post-COVID stimulus plans. I have no doubt of that. Um, I don't think as much is going to be spent on sort of the traditional wind and solar type projects as, as you would expect. I think we're starting to see more of the monies going towards uh, uh, f- increasing the pace of EV 
penetration and growth and increasing energy efficiency programs, things like that. So it, I think the stimulus is going to more be uh, providing some some help to some of the industries that aren't quite as as, as established and moving on their own. I, I think the traditional wind and solar projects are going to continue just fine without much stimulus, frankly. Yeah, interesting. As as one distinction I see a little bit is in the offshore space where possibly the ambition rises. You know, these still require support um and, yeah. and 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 that that might be one one different area were there any lessons i mean you you were around and watching the the obama stimulus in 2009 2010 mm-hmm. do you think there are any lessons for europe from that that period in the us um you know i think the the main message is that when when you have a, a market that wants to grow and i think that's certainly true of the renewable energy markets um market interruptions like COVID, you know, get quickly forgotten. Uh, and, and a year from now, presuming COVID subsides and we're, we're moving forward, I, yeah, I think this will be a blip that we don't think too much about. Interesting. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if Tesla was a beneficiary, but certainly some of Elon Musk businesses and you kind of look, at least I look back now and, you know, wind in Texas and, and, and things like that, look back at that period in the US and, and look now and say, well, it, it, that stimulus seems to, in some ways, have changed the you know who knows where Tesla would be right now, but it changed the energy landscape um, qu- qu- quite a bit. Yeah, I guess I guess what I'm seeing because I represent obviously a, a lot of investors who are focused on the space is I I'm not seeing a lot of people um, pulling back from wanting to put money to work in renewable energy. In fact, on the contrary, I think I'm seeing more money interested in the space and wanting to go forward, and and that money. Uh, is 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 still there and and still interested and for well structured projects I, I don't see I, I think we're going to be fine. Interesting. I said in your bio you were developing wind projects in the 1980s. How did they work? What so the costs were a lot higher. <laughs> I mean maybe you remember what the cost. You know I don't I don't know if you can do the the inflation adjustment, but but you know presumably they were a lot more expensive. The turbines were, were different technology. Yeah. Who was paying for these things? Oh boy, the, 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 you're taking me way back. It was it was like the Wild West back in the 1980s. Um, you know, there were relatively few markets you could go to, but the one that I happened to be working in was California. And back in those days, um, there was a, a government program that that said that uh, all you had to do was go into your local utility company and sign a piece of paper, and they would give you a 20-year um, power purchase agreement. And wow! Then and then they'd put it on the the rate base or whatever it was for the consumers. Exactly. They put it on the right base and there were different kinds of contracts you could do. And then the onus was on, you know, us as developers to to figure out how to find the land and find a turbine that would work. You talked about a 50 kilowatt turbine. Was it the Mm -hmm. same manufacturers back then as as now? How how did that, how did that, was there a first mover advantage there or how did that industry evolve? (laughs) It's funny. I I, I keep a number of t-shirts of now defunct wind turbine suppliers (laughs) in my my drawer. It's like a who's who of names you've never heard before. Um, no, I, I, over the years, we've seen a lot of people uh, enter and exit the business. You know, Vestas was around back then, and, mm-hmm. and they bought up a lot of the smaller wind turbine manufacturers that were, were struggling. But no, you know, back, back in the 80s, we had a whole bunch of names that, that uh, you wouldn't even hear these days. U.S. Wind Power, Canatex, Zond, you know, uh, companies that, that uh, you know, were good for a while, but then the, the industry outgrew them. Interesting. Now the, the the other sort of period of history I, I want to touch on briefly was was BP and mm-hmm. 
beyond patrol, you know, beyond petroleum, BP's first, I suppose, first foray into renewable. So we're going back sort of 20, 20 years now. Yep. What were you, were you at BP at the time during this, during this yeah. Um, period? And yeah. Yeah. I joined BP around 2001, which is when I moved to Europe. And, um, and at the time, Lord Brown was the CEO and he was one of the first to, to show the, the guts to talk about CO2 and the impact uh, it would have on the planet. And so he was very much uh, ahead of the game in terms of, of moving BP into a greener direction. And I remember one of the, one of the defining moments for us in, in that was we had a, a career day where we would sort of have these big halls where we would try to invite graduates to come in and uh, you know, talk them into joining BP. And, and we had different desks for downstream and upstream and, and technology and things like that. And then we, we had a desk for renewable energy where I sat. And, and uh, it, you know, around 2004, 2005, we just found ourselves inundated by young college graduates. And at that point in time, we realized that the, the tide was really turning and, and the, the young hearts and minds were, were really interested in this. And that was one of the reasons why we, we decided to push BP in that direction. I hear similar similar stories from the other side. It's sort of recruiting at big oil and gas nowadays on campus is a, is a, is a combat sport in, in, in yeah. some ways. It's a, it's a challenge. What do you think? So I think when people reflect on that period for BP, they, they say, okay, it didn't work out. You know, there, there, was, a, there was a hasty retreat. Sure. What do you think BP got right? And what do you think they got wrong about that period? Well, yeah, that we could write a book on that. And in fact, I, I suspect that someday somebody will. Um, you know, pre-2010 uh, in, in renewable energy, it was early days still. And a lot of uh, early investors struggled. And if you look at performance of the early stage PD funds or infrastructure funds in renewable energy, anything pre-2010 struggled, anything post-2010 has, has been a big, big success. So, so I think it really was, was in part timing. But it was also, uh, you know, moving moving mines in a big oil company is not an easy thing. And I, and I recall some of the early conversations in the boardrooms of BP. Yeah, there were a lot of questions as to to how we would get hearts and minds around embracing a, a lower carbon future. And you know, surely people who had spent their careers, you know, in upstream or or refining, you know, were very skeptical of what we were trying to do and and how we would do it and why we would do it. And, 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 and there was by no means unanimity that it was the right thing to do back at that point in time. And so we had all sorts of things we wrestled with about, you know, do you keep the business separate and have it have its own culture? Do you, do you integrate it? Do you, do you hire people from the outside with expertise in industry or do you try to repurpose oil and gas executives? And, and, and all those issues were, were hard. And sometimes being the first guy through the door uh, you get shot. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I think, I think being first is not always best. And then we wrestled with a lot of, of, of issues that I think uh, are now being sort of to the benefit of all the oil companies who are, who are going through it and, and turning to a greener future. Yeah. And at least from the outside, it seems like having been an early mover, BP's now been a, a, a later mover in this, in this phase, which, which may be the, 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 the right way to play it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, as you say, there's a lot more we could talk about there, but but I want to I want to start to talk about the role of private equity in in energy. I suppose f- first question 
here is around, and this is more your activities. So you're in biomass in a big way. One, one question I have is what was the UK's role in the development of this global pellet business? I, so I don't know. I know Drax got some big contracts. I, you know, basically saved the, probably saved the, that, that, you know, that power station when you compare it to other coal plants in the, in the UK. Was that small on a global scale? Did that play a role in, you know, seeding an industry and, and reducing costs? Should, should we be crowing about that the same way we crow about the British offshore industry or, or is it a different, different story? No, no, I actually think your, your question spot on. It's, it's a good story. I, I think Britain played a very key pivotal role in offshore wind and, and also on biomass. And I, I think the role Britain has played on biomass is unsung and, 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 and Britain doesn't get the credit that it deserves on this. Um, you, you referenced Drax, which was the, at the time the, the largest coal plant in Europe and one of the largest in the world. And, and the UK put in place some policies that allowed not only Drax, but other coal producers to transition away from coal and into biomass. And, and that led to the, what was in essence the creation of the, the biomass industry at scale. I mean, people had always done biomass projects, but, but, but the UK's program really put it on the map and really allowed the industry to mature to the point now where we're actually it's scaling well beyond Britain. So you see a lot of projects, we're, we're doing supply to a lot of projects in continental Europe. Uh, Japan has taken off. Um, there's a fair number of island projects that are, are critical to the island economies that they serve. Uh, and so, yeah, and I think that all really fundamentally started in, in Britain and Britain should be proud of it. Interesting. Well, I, I suppose one of the one of the issues, one of the things you hear commonly in the public debate around biomass is how sustainable is it? Uh, and mm -hmm. I and I suppose, I, and again, I I'm I'm no expert on this, but there's the chopping down trees bit, uh, yeah. and it, it seems sort of one challenge. And then there's the supply chain carbon emissions bit. You know, if we're if we're if we're sourcing this from a long way away, uh, you know, how much energy we're actually using to get it to the the place yeah. that we combust it. How, yeah, no, it, how it, justified it, are they? Yeah, and it, will yeah, that be an impediment for the industry going forward, do you think? Well, no, it's a great question, and I, and I wish more people would ask it, because as in all things, there are, there are good ways to do things and bad ways to do things, and there are good operators and bad operators. And we, uh, the company that Riverstone uh, owns is called Inviva Biomass, um, we believe strongly in trying to do what we can to make this as sustainable and environmentally friendly a business that, that we can do. And I know that Drax also has a similar viewpoints in, in some of their own interests as well. So, you know, there are certain things that are done to, to ensure that, that when you remove a tree, you, you, you replace it with one or more um, new trees. Or, you know, we're doing programs that, but for um, our involvement and in our purchase of the wood and the fiber, many of these um, uh, uh, small forest tracks would not otherwise exist and they'd be you know, turned into parking lots and strip malls. Um, so there, there is um, a, a lot of emphasis on trying to do this well. And as in any industry, um, if you do it poorly, there could be very disastrous consequences, but if you do it well, you can actually have a great uh, environmental impact. And so I wish more people would, would, would ask the questions and focus on the issues because that only prompts the industry to do better. And the same is true for wind and solar, by the way. Yeah, no, I de de definitely agree with you there. And do you think when we talk about net you know, zero carbon dispatchable technologies, 
How do you think about competition between, say, pellets, hydrogen, CCS as the you know as the as the dominant ones at the moment? Will they all yeah. coexist? Does, does pellets have a natural kind of cost cost advantage? Uh, well, yeah. yeah. So, so I am I am a I am a firmly and I'm an all the above <laughs> person in the yeah. sense that I think we need all of them. Um, and I think you know we've proven through some of the work we've done over the last decade that that biomass is something that can be done now at scale and and on decent economics and, and good environmental performance. CCS, you know, is still coming into its own. I mean, I remember we at BP, we started working on CCS back in 2004, 2005, and, and it takes decades for this technology and uh, to, to develop and to get to the point where you can put it in a scale. So, so I'm personally of the belief that we have to be pushing the accelerator under, on all of these things uh, because they're all gonna have their time to come to fruition. So, so I don't think it's an either or, I think it's an either and. Yeah. And it sounded like there's a bit of an option argument in there as well. Maybe not all of them will come along, but uh, you know, how, how lucky are we feeling at this, at this point in time? So as I mean, would you be yes, surprised that, if CCS didn't work out at scale? I, I think there are going to be certain places where it's better than others. Um, you know, a lot of people yeah. don't realize this, but there, there's a fair number of CCS projects in certain parts of the U S because there's, there's a market driver or a geologic driver or mm -hmm. a project driver that, that allows it to succeed. CCS won't be phenomenally successful everywhere in the world, but it will be successful in certain parts where you have all the, all the elements needed to come together. Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. So it was biomass on the, on the PE approach to the power sector, one thing that I one thing I hear about the oil majors is that you know how on a, at least before the before COVID nineteen and the oil price crashes, you know how on earth am I going to justify a, an eight percent IRR investment hmm. compared to drilling for oil with a with a mid teens IRR? How yeah. so? And that seemed to be a fundamental challenge for these businesses. I, yeah. I imagine you have a similar situation in in PE. I mean. It, you know, within PE, how do funds justify the power sector investment as a, who, who are doing both compared to the oil and gas investment? What's the, what's the logic yeah. there that you see? <laughs> it, it, it's, it's an interesting question. And it's one that, you know, I've, I've been wrestling with for, for, for decades. Cause that, as you say, at BP, it was always a, a conversation of why should I put in a, uh, you know, money into a, a lower returning wind or solar project when I can get a higher returning oil project. And, if you actually study, uh, you know, the returns on, on energy projects over an extended period of time, you actually find out that the returns aren't as dissimilar as people think they are. Interesting. Um, and at Imperial, actually, there was some research that came out uh, just a, a few weeks ago in a paper that was written just a few weeks ago that actually shows over the last five or six years, returns have actually been better on renewable energy than they have on conventional energy. Some of that is related to the COVID impact, but some of it mm -hmm. is broader market forces in general. And so, you know, generally what you find is you are getting more returns and more infrastructure-like returns on renewable energy projects, but your, your degree of failure is much, much lower. So lower risk, lower return. Yeah. Um, and, and on oil, the corollary is, you know, on some projects, you, you actually get a substantially higher return. But then for all of those projects, you have a couple of projects that don't work out so well. So on balance over an extended period of time, they're all not as dissimilar as otherwise might. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And I suppose the ESG angle is also c coming in, in in perhaps justifying a lower return. Where, where, where do you think we are on, on ESG? Where do you think we're going to be in five or 10 years time as someone who's who's raising capital for for energy yeah. sector 
Yeah, so look, there is absolutely no question that, that ESG principles are influencing behavior. Um, and it is top of mind on most of the larger investors, as it should be. Uh, and that is flowing through to investors like me and, and all of all firms, frankly. But I still think we're relatively early stages in terms of the implementation and measurement of it. You know, I think a lot of people have done some great work around what is ESG and what should you be doing and what are guidelines and what type of reporting should you be doing? And, and we're all listening to that. But I don't think we've yet gotten to the point where it's biting as much as it, as it will five years down the line. Um, so, you know, I think the next several years are going to show which investors are taking it seriously and which investors are, are doing it with lip service only. And I think the capital is going to start flowing to those who take it seriously and can prove and demonstrate that they're, they're proving it seriously with tangible actions and, and tangible results. Um, interestingly, you know, it, it, the, the words ES, you know, the letters ESG, um, e is getting a bit more uh, attention than the S and the G, but I think that'll equilibrate over time. Okay, interesting. And I suppose that just on one aspect of that maturity point you make, which is the way we, the way we define, you know, the, the way we define what is good ESG. And, and, you know, we see companies talking about scope one activities and uh, uh, scope three or, or emissions, you know, ones right. that, you know, scope one are the easier ones, the ones that relate to activity scope three are more embedded in, in products. Mm-hmm. Do you think, do you think it's a necessary condition for this to move forward for us to get better at defining what is good? Do, I mean, do you think that's an achievable goal? And, and I suppose, you, you talked about the S. I, I, I imagine definitions become even harder at that, you know, with the S than with the E. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, there, there, there's some organizations like the UNPRI series. There's a number of organizations that are, are, that are doing good work in trying to define principles and trying to devise, define concrete ways to measure performance. But it's not an easy thing to do because you're trying to measure performance across a pretty wide variety of products. You know, everything from, you know, making shampoo to making diesel fuel to going to a car. You know, how do you equilibrate and how do you, how do you sort of realistically and fairly measure who's doing a good job and who's doing a bad job? And like all things, it's going to take time. And what we're doing today, uh, five years from now, is going to seem you know, sophomoric and, and idiotic, but, you know, you have to go through the steps to get to, to the point where it's really well measured. Yeah, but indeed. if anything, we are headed the right direction. And if anything, I think we're going to see a lot more attention rather than less attention. And I right. think those of us who don't take it seriously are going to feel the consequences. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a prom- promising, promising message, I, I suppose. And, I, and reflects definitely the trajectory of the last the last five years. Um, great. So can we conclude? I, I always conclude these podcasts by asking uh, about a few concepts in energy and asking whether you think they're overrated or, or, or underrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the principle's a bit like, inve- you know, anything's a good investment as long as the price is low enough, uh, just about. Uh, yeah. So it's the same sort of concept. You know, not asking if something's good or bad. Is it overrated or is it underrated? Um, so I've got four concepts. The first concept is markets for electricity um so do you think the use of markets um to work out what happens in an electricity system is overrated or underrated interesting question you know look i think that all of us who've been working on the development of renewable energy for the past 10 or 20 years have been 
have been operating with a lot of safety because we can always build a project and sell our, all of our offtake, any power we generate under long-term agreements. And, and those days are done. <laughs> you know, now mm -hmm. it's all about the markets and, and selling on the open markets and doing a mix of short-term and long-term contracts. So, you know, mar markets are, are, are it. And, and, and those companies that get their arms around how to behave in a competitive marketplace, are the ones that are going to succeed and grow over over the longer haul. Those that don't are going to become dinosaurs and disappear. Okay, so underrated then, mm. as the concept. Okay. Okay. Oh, good. Okay, so next concept is policy risk for investors. Investors yep. often say, "Yeah, I just need less policy risk, lower the cost of capital. It's good for consumers." Obviously, government values being able to change its mind uh, because as the world changes and, and also yep. values not having things on their balance sheet. Um, do you think policy risk for investors as a concept is underrated or overrated? I think that policy risk is a big deal and it will always be a big deal. You know, governments come and governments go and governments, as you know, reserve the right to change their mind. And, and even small adjustments by governments can have big impacts on investments. And so anybody investing in this space has to make sure that they understand the local policy uh, uh, impacts and, and, and things that are top of mind among the regulators and the, and the politicians because they will have a big impact. And that's never gonna go away. This is a policy, anything in energy is a policy driven uh, business. Okay. Okay, so I'll uh, underwrite. Okay, very good. So vertical integration in electricity markets in Europe. Uh, we've, we've seen it come. It looks like it's going a bit. Uh, do you think it's overrated or underrated? So, uh, overrated. I, I don't see a big deal on that. Okay, interesting. Uh, final concept is global renewables investors. Co yeah. content, this, is, this is companies or, or investment funds that have portfolios that cover multiple markets you know we're seeing utilities like rwe like orsted and other investors that are moving from a kind of one or a few country model to a multiple country model do you think that that business model is overrated or underrated uh look i think i think a global perspective is important because some countries are going to go through periods of growth whereas other go through contractions and particularly in renewable growth. So it's important to be global in my particular perspective, um, but uh, it's also important that people realize that everything in, in this business is local. So while you have to have a global perspective, you also gotta be on the ground and in the details and part of the community you're working in. Thanks, that's a great thought to end on, Glo global focus, but with local knowledge. Uh, so on that note, uh, Thanks very much for joining us, Chris, uh, for sharing your wealth of expertise and for fitting us into your busy schedule. Uh, really appreciate it. Well, and, and a congrats to Aurora that, that you're doing this, but also just on the impact you as a company have made on a sector. You know, you haven't been around for, for 30 years like some other companies, but you guys <laughs> have made a big impact in a short period of time. So congratulations on that. Thanks. Really appreciate that, Chris. De delighted to hear it. Okay. Goodbye. All right. That was Aurora's chief executive and co-founder, John Federson, talking to Riverstone partner, Chris Hunt. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.